0: and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was of the mother, she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever.
1: A few weeks ago, I saw about 20 short films. Uh, Some of you were there with me. It was part of a thesis screening for one of our members and her uh, classmates who were graduating with an MFA. And as I was watching these films, something surprised me. Some had themes that I expected, like identity and mental health, but others had themes that I didn't expect, themes of the brokenness of the world being restored, and themes of a hero conquering evil. I was surprised to see so many films with these themes, but maybe I shouldn't be. These are themes that are embedded deep within our souls, we all intuitively recognize that the world isn't as it should be. We ask, why is there so much conflict and pain in our relationships and between entire nations? Why is there suffering and death? Many of us are familiar with six-year-old William Cho, Three weeks ago, his family took him to the mall to exchange a birthday gift when an attacker opened fire and killed both of his, uh, both of his parents and his brother. And just this past week, we lost an exceptional pastor who has had a profound impact on many of us, Tim Keller. We see these things and we know The world is not as it should be. And we hunger for an answer. Today I want to show you that Genesis 3 answers these existential questions and shows us the way to redemption. It tells us why the world is broken and gives us the way to salvation. So let's look closely at what this story has to say. But first, let me set the scene. Genesis 2 ends in paradise. God has created the heavens and the earth and placed the man in the garden of Eden. And we're told that God put in the garden every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The garden is filled with beauty and with everything the man could ever need. And God said to the man, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And at the end of the chapter, God created the woman to be his helper. And in the last verse of the chapter, we're told, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's no conflict, no disharmony, no death. Everything is as it should be. But then comes chapter three. And in the first verse of this chapter, we're introduced to the crafty serpent who comes to the woman. and look at what he says. He says, "Did God actually say, "You shall not eat of any tree in the garden?" The fall of man begins with a question. It's very subtle. The serpent doesn't begin with an outright rejection of God, but prods with a question. But if you read this verse carefully, you'll notice that already there is a subversion to God's good world. We see this first in what the serpent calls God. Throughout chapter 2, God's title is the Lord God. It's his covenant name, the name that he uses when he's talking with his people. But here the serpent shortens it to just God, and that's significant it shows his distance from God. And this shortened title remains until after the man and the woman eat of the forbidden fruit. In this subversion, we see this also that in so far in Genesis, we've seen the power of God's word. God said, Let there be light. And there was light. But here, the serpent is questioning God's words. And there's a twisting of his words too. In Genesis 2, God said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But what does the serpent say? He says, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. He turns God's abundant provision into a prohibition to eat of any tree of the garden. And the woman replies by correcting the snake, but not entirely Already in her reply, there's a questioning of God too. And we see this in four ways. First, in verse 3, she adopts the serpent's language of God rather than the Lord God. She distances herself from him. And second, like the serpent, she minimizes God's generous provision. God said, you may surely eat, but the woman just says, We may eat. She understates God's goodness. And third, she minimizes God's warning. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But the woman just says, lest you die. And fourth, she adds to what God says, making him appear overly harsh. She says that God said they cannot even touch the tree. But God never said that. So take a step back for a second and notice what's happening here. The man and the woman are literally living in paradise. With everything they could ever need, it's full of rich provision and and abundant beauty. But even in paradise, they begin to question God's goodness. I recently had uh, probably the best food that I will ever have in my entire life. For Mifungs and my birthday, and also for Mother's Day, <coughs> we splurged and had omakase yakitori. And I didn't know that food could be so good. It was incredible. And on the way home, I told Mifung that it almost felt disrespectful to ever eat again. Because how could I, after experiencing such heights, have a slice of pizza ever again? that's how adam and eve should have felt here but infinitely more so and yet instead of enjoying the bounty of god's blessing they minimized his goodness and fixated on the one fruit that he told them not to eat it would be like if i had in the middle of this best meal of my entire life pushed aside my plate got up left the restaurant went to the street, found a piece of gum on the ground, picked it up, and put it in my mouth. And yet how often do we do the same thing? That's what sin is. We forget about how abundantly God has blessed us, and we minimize His goodness. Instead of delighting in all that he has given us, we desire what we do not have that apartment, that lifestyle, or we lust after what he forbids. Like the man and the woman, we portray him as being overly harsh, as if he's keeping something good from us or being unreasonable in his demands. And then we minimize his warning. We think, God won't really mind if I do this, he wants me to be happy. Until forgive me. And so, like the woman, we distance ourselves from him emotionally and in our words. And once the uh, woman had distanced herself in that way, the serpent now directly contradicts God's words. Look at verse four You will not surely die. And he doesn't just question God's words, he questions his motivation. He implies that God is being selfish in some way. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And here's the key part. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And yet notice that even still, the serpent doesn't demand that the woman eat the fruit. He simply questions God. And that's often all that it takes. When we begin to question God, when we think, is God's way really what's best for me? Is that really what will make me happy? Is that really what I want? When we begin to think in these ways, we've set ourselves above God. Instead of submitting to Him, we evaluate Him. We decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. Instead of trusting in him, we question him. And all it took for the serpent was to get the woman to that point. And look at what she does next, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Once trust in God was replaced with doubt and with the desire to be like God, the fall of man happens in a quick succession of four simple verbs. She took and she ate and she gave and he ate. And immediately, We see the consequence. Just like the serpent said, their eyes were opened. But what did they see? That they were naked. The serpent's half-truth didn't turn out the way that they had expected. Instead of leading to wisdom, it led to shame. And that's how it always happens, isn't it? Our sin never turns out like we had hoped. I mean, how many times have you looked back and said, yeah, that sin really did make my life better. I'm glad I did that. It's like if someone said to me, yeah, I've I've had the Wagyu at the restaurant that you're talking about. I mean, it's okay. But do you know what's far better? A juicy, tender McDonald's cheeseburger. They might be able to convince me to give it a try, but it's never going to live up to the hype. Likewise, we can seek happiness in a certain status in our career or a certain lifestyle, but it never delivers what it promises. We can go to that website or seek that relationship, but it never satisfies. Instead, it leads to what we see here, shame. And so notice the first effect of sin in this passage. Sin separates the man from the, woman. the innocence that they had in their nakedness at the end of chapter 2 is shattered. And now what they feel is shame. And so they hide their nakedness from each other. And not only that, but they also hide from God. Take a look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The second effect of sin is that it separates us from God. Their desire to be like God led to alienation from God. And look at the tragic irony here. The trees which God had created for man's delight are now where they go to hide themselves from him. It's gut-wrenching to see. But did you notice what is returned in this verse? What is God's title here? Again, he's called the Lord God. The covenant God, the God of his people, although they had broken his covenant by disobeying the command, still he seeks out the man and his wife. This is who our God is. Even when we deliberately disobey him and try to hide or shame from him, still he pursues us with his love. He calls to the man and says, in Hebrew it's just one word, where are you? But rather than confess his sin, the man tries to change the subject. He says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So God digs deeper. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Still, the man does not confess. <clears throat> he says, "The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit." It's an absolutely heartbreaking statement. The woman whom God had just given to the man to be his dearest companion, her she blames for his fault. Heartbreaking. And not only her, but he even dares to blame God himself. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He blames everyone but himself. And isn't that what we do all the time? It's like when I've been grumpy and Mifeng asks me why and I say, Oh, because the apartment's a mess, and because David Jr. needs a snack, and because I have a meeting in 10 minutes, and I have to do this one thing first, and because my tea is cold. When what I should have said is, you're right, I'm sorry for being grumpy. I don't know about you, but I'm just like the man here. I find all kinds of excuses before I take responsibility for my own sin. And like the man, we can even blame God for the situation in which he puts us. Because of the family you gave me. Because of the relationship that you won't give me. Only after blaming his wife and God himself does the man finally confess that he ate. And so God turns to the woman, and just like the man, she first blames someone else. Look at what she says. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So notice here the third effect of sin. The woman sets herself against the serpent and blames him for her eating the fruit, because of the serpent's rebellion against God, followed by the woman's, there is now a disharmony between man and animals that didn't exist in chapter 2. And so finally, God turns to the serpent and says, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the beasts of the field. When we were first introduced to this serpent, he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, he is cursed above all beasts of the field. Until now, in Genesis 1-2, through God has blessed his creation. Now, as a result of what happened, that blessing turns to a curse. But even in this curse, there's mercy and hope. Here's a pop quiz for you. I see at least one person in this room who will know the answer to this. Who knows what the word proto-evangelium means? You can probably figure it out, actually. The word proto means, think prototype, right? Proto means first. And for evangelium, think evangelism. It means gospel. So proto-evangelium means first gospel. Theologians sometimes call verse 14 the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. And here's why. God breaks the alliance that mankind and the serpent had against him. Whereas they had been united in their rebellion against God, God breaks that bond. So that now, even though there will be for the rest of history a battle between good and evil, a battle which we see played out throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and still to this day, the good news is that not everyone will be on the side of evil. There will be some offspring of the woman who will choose instead to be on God's side. And in the final two lines of this Proto-Evangelium, God promises that an offspring of the woman will ultimately be victorious And so what is a curse for the serpent is good news for mankind. Although this offspring will be injured, we're told that his heel will be bruised, he will bruise the head of the serpent. It's this hero theme that I saw in so many of those thesis screenings. One day good will triumph over evil. That's God's promise here. And that's why we resonate with that theme deep within our souls. But next, God turns to the woman and says, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There is pain now in childbirth. And we see again the separation that sin brings between the man and the woman. Instead of companionship and mutual help and service, there's now tension and even hostility between the husband and the wife. Why is there so much conflict in the world, in our relationships, and between entire nations? Because sin has introduced hostility into our relationships. Sin has divided what was meant to be one. And finally, God turns to the man, verse 17. He says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, that is, because instead of listening to my voice and doing what I commanded, because instead of declaring my words to the servant, you listen to the voice of your wife. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so here we see the fourth effect of sin. Not only does sin separate us from God and from each other and from the animals, it also brings a curse on the ground In chapter 2, we're told that God brought forth from the ground everything that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God is the subject of bring forth. Now, in verse 18, the ground is the subject. And rather than everything that is good for food, we read thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Sin has brought a transformation of the physical world. Before the fall, God provided everything that we needed. After the fall, we struggle to provide for ourselves and for those that we love. Because Adam ate the fruit, now in sweat and pain he will eat of the ground. Sin is the reason why there is disharmony between us and our world. This is also why our work can be such a struggle. Work itself is not a curse. In Genesis 2, God put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. The curse is that now, rather than a blessing, our work is also toilsome. And rather than yield provision, sometimes our work brings nothing but thorns and thistles. Some of you have experienced this recently. You poured yourself into your job, working nights and weekends. But then the economy took a turn, and just like that, you were let go. Part of the curse here is that the work we put in does not always pay off. Things beyond our control frustrate our efforts. Sometimes we sow, but we do not reap. We work by the sweat of our brow, but find only thorns and thistles. And in the last part of this judgment, we see, just as God had warned, Adam's disobedience ultimately brings death. Verse 19 says, you will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here we see the fifth effect of sin separates us from God and from each other. It brings disharmony between man and animal and man and the earth. And ultimately, it brings physical death. Death exists because of sin. But it's interesting what happens next. Look at the hope the man has, even in the midst of this judgment. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, which sounds like the Hebrew word for living. In the face of death and before she had any children, he names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. What a beautiful faith. He finally recognizes his sin and puts his trust in God. He trusts in God's promise that an offspring of his wife will one day restore all that he has broken. Oh, that we would have this kind of faith. Oh, that we would look in the face of the brokenness of the world and see God's promises as greater. Greater. Oh, that we would see the darkest corners of existence and believe that the light of God is stronger still. And look at what happens next. Look at the grace that God shows Adam and Eve. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, And clothe them. The hastily made, insufficient fig leaves that they made in verse 7 are covered with garments of skin. There's probably even here a hint of substitutionary atonement. That is, in order for God to make these garments, an innocent animal had to die. This foreshadows the system of animal sacrifices and ultimately Christ, our sacrificial lamb. In the final part of this story, the Lord drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. In chapter two, God placed Adam in the garden to work it and guard it. Now God sentences, sentences him to work the ground outside of the garden. And rather than Adam guarding the garden, God places a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life, threatening judgment and death to any who would come near. From paradise, at the beginning of chapter two, everything has changed. And so this story ends with us longing for the offspring of the woman who will one day restore all that is Broken. And so to this day, we continue to write stories and to watch short films with these same themes because we all intuitively feel that the world is not as it should be. And somewhere deep down, we have hope that maybe one day good will triumph over evil. I said at the beginning that Genesis 3 answers are questions about why the world is broken and shows us the way to redemption. The answer it gives is that the world is broken because of sin. And it shows us that the way to our redemption is through faith in the offspring of the woman. And what God has revealed to us today is that offspring is Jesus Christ for where Adam failed Jesus overcame. Adam was tempted in a lush garden, full of God's abundant provision. Jesus, after he was baptized, was led by the spirit to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness without food. Adam failed to speak and obey God's words when they were being twisted by the serpent and his wife. When Jesus was tempted, he quoted God's words and trusted in God's promises above the lies of the devil. Adam desired to be like God, without obedience to God. Jesus, God himself, was obedient to the Father even unto death. Adam and Eve, when they ate from the tree, realized that they were naked. Jesus died naked on a tree. Adam and Eve tried to blame others for their sin. Jesus took responsibility for the sin of you and me. Jesus is the promised offspring of the woman who, though he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus passed through the flaming sword of God's judgment and rose again victorious over all sin and death. He has entered back into God's presence to eat of the tree of life. And now, He brings restoration to all that our sin has broken. He brings peace between spouses and friends. He'll bring peace between nations, between man and animal. And one day, He will set all creation free from its bondage to sin. And most importantly where Adam's trespass alienated us from God and brought death into the world, Jesus' obedience unites us to himself that we might eat from the tree of life and live forever with him. He clothes us not just in garments of skin. The Lamb of God covers our shame with his perfect righteousness so that we might experience not the curse that our sin deserves, but the blessing His righteousness deserves. And while we still live in a fallen world, awaiting the day when He will put all things right, still with Christ in us, restoring our brokenness. Let us work for greater harmony in our relationships, our communities, and with all creation. For what our sin has broken, Jesus restores. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your Son who restores all that we have broken. May your Spirit within us renew our hearts and minds that we might seek and find you. Give us hope and strength to live for you in the midst of a broken world. And make us, we ask, instruments of your redeeming grace to your whole creation. Come, Lord Jesus, and redeem your world. Amen.